Thank you so much for joining another episode of First Generation. Today we have Bilal Mahmoud, who uh, grew up in the Bay Area, I believe, and um, previously was in technology, sold his company to Amplitude, and now is running for state assembly. And so we've gotten to know each other over the past few months, and it's been really exciting to see uh, sort of Bilal's move into politics, but also really to hear a little bit about his family background and how it inspired him to found a company. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Bilal to introduce himself. Uh, thanks, Darian. Excited to be here. Um, but yeah, a little bit of myself, and uh, I'm a civil servant and an entrepreneur, uh, born and raised in the Bay Area. Um, my family immigrated here 30 years ago uh, in search of a better life uh, for what, what we felt America could offer, um, which was the dream of the middle class. And I've focused a lot of my career, whether it's in policy, technology, or science, on how to help achieve that dream. And so policy is the, is the place I'm focusing on right now, but I've had a varied career over many different disciplines, all towards the same objective. Very cool. So tell me a little bit about you growing up and, and what that was like, where you grew up. I saw that you uh, sort of were, were, you were a writer for the Palo Alto High School newspaper on your LinkedIn. Maybe tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up yeah. and uh, some of the stories. Yeah, so... I yeah, so starting off, um, so for context, my parents uh, immigrated here from Pakistan uh, 30, over, a little bit over 30 years ago. Uh, so I was born and raised on Stanford campus uh, because my dad got a visa to immigrate here. And they moved because the history of Pakistan is actually quite difficult. Like every 10 years, it alternates between a dictatorship and a democracy. So when the second dictator took over, they moved here. And it was only possible because my dad was able to get a student visa to come. And when we came, uh, it was three generations of us in a single family home uh, when we started off. And but it felt, I mean, it felt fine. It was great. Uh, and it was it was really, really fascinating. But I think what was interesting about our family upbringing was that my mom never let us kind of both when we didn't have means and when we did our house was always a refuge for other immigrants. And uh, every year I kind of joked that I had a new best friend growing up from Pakistan as my parents were effectively providing transitional shelter. So our house was always a refuge and a effectively transitional shelter for more immigrants to come to the country. And it kind of like really refocused in hindsight that a house is really the gateway for people to come to this country. And so that's kind of like, in the house, what I saw growing up, but outside of that, it was pretty, pretty boilerplate home. Like education was super important. I went to the public school system. I went to Palo High, like you mentioned, um, and uh, it was pretty normal. I think the the biggest change for me, I guess, uh, looking back though, is that I finished high school in back in Pakistan. Um, oh wow! Parents, yeah, so after nine eleven. So actually I have like a double immigrant story. Like my parents moved here and then after 9-11, the, uh, due to Islamophobia that was happening in the country, um, they moved back to Pakistan in that context. And ironically at the time, it was another dictator had taken over that country, but they felt, they originally thought they'd be safer back in Pakistan. Um, long story short, two years after that, they moved back here because it was, it was worse. Um, and, uh, but going back and finishing high school in, in Pakistan was fascinating because I went to an American school. So it was run by the U S state department, 
but very, very different than, than growing up here. Um, and just seeing massive amounts of inequality uh, doesn't actually look too different than San Francisco today, um, but slums next to mansions and now tents next to skyscrapers. Um, that was a very formative experience as well. That was probably a big change from Palo Alto. I mean, Palo Alto is a, quite a wealthy area, especially Pali is in one of the nicer neighborhoods in Palo Alto. So um, that was yeah. probably a big change. But um, what in so so then you 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 finished high school there, then you went to Stanford. Well, that was probably a big change as well. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like it inspired you in any way to sort of like what? Well, actually, let's go back to your to your your mother's reasoning for letting a lot of immigrants into your house. I mean, what inspired her to do that? Why did she decide to yeah. do that? Um, and then we can move on to Stanford. But yeah, I think it's a combination of. I think reflecting back, my family's story is one of constant immigration. Um, every generation has effectively <laughs> lived in for four generations. Every generation has lived in a different country, often not by choice. Wow. Um, so ethnically, we are Kashmiri, um, which has remained in occupied territory by different empires and countries for a hundred years. So, and it's still disputed even today. Still disputed today. So four generations ago, the British took over. Um, and then three generations ago, uh, they placed my great-grandparents in Nairobi to work on the railroads. Um, wow. And so my grandparents uh, were actually born and raised in Nairobi. Um, and then when the British Empire collapses... They have to move out and they move back to the Punjab and then it gets partitioned and then they grow up in Lahore. And so I think to answer your question in some context, either subconsciously or consciously, my, I think my mom would credit her dad for instilling in her a sense of charity and trying to make the world a better place. And he probably got it from just observing his parents and what they had to go through. Um, I know like my mom would say that my, that her dad's mother, so my great grandmother um, was a powerhouse of a woman. She like all of her, I think a lot of her siblings or her children died of polio, I think in a, in a pandemic um, that was happening. And so she single-handedly raised a lot of our family and just, I missed the partition. And so the, I think that's probably the long answer to why my mom felt this has had this strong sense of social justice to helping others. Uh, and she still does. And that's, I think rubbed off on me in different ways than she probably, she, I don't think she ever thought I would be going into politics. Uh, I think there's been some, she's like, we left that country. So you didn't have to go into politics. Um, and so the, uh, but I, I do think that it's our family history and what's been incorporated over generations and that sense of charity that came from my grandfather to my mother, uh, that really, I think informed a lot of that, that, that those decisions. Wow. And that, that, and also it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, you seem to have a lot of different interests at Stanford. It looks like you studied biology and econ, then you went to Cambridge and did a master's in bioscience, um, which would love to hear more about that. And then you wanted to start a company. So it seems like you've, you, you're yeah. very fascinated by a lot of different things. And so, you know, you graduate Stanford, you have this diverse set of ideas and background as well as 
interests. So how do you chart your course from there? <laughs> would be great to hear. Yeah. So I think there's that famous uh, commencement speech from Steve Jobs, which is wholly runs true for my journey as well. It's like, it, it's hard to connect the dots looking forward, but it's very easy to connect the dots looking backwards. Um, so I think the way I've always looked at things going forward was how can I make the most impact as possible towards the issues that matter to me? And I think given my family's story and um, also the formative years I spend in Pakistan myself, inequality has always been one of the top issues for me in terms of how do I address that? And I was always agnostic to what is the solution to address it? Is it in the private sector? Is it in the public sector? Is it in a nonprofit? Is it for-profit? And I always just decided to work on the thing that made the most sense to me at that time to have that amount of impact. So in college, um, I was doing two things. One, I set up a nonprofit in, at Stanford, which was one of the best experiences I ever had, which was micro lending services for the working poor. 99% of the loans went to female entrepreneurs in, in China, India, Africa, Latin America, as well as in the U.S. a little bit. It was, uh, the Grameen Bank had just won the Nobel Peace Prize, and we were really excited about this opportunity to leverage um, the private sector through social entrepreneurship for good. Simultaneously, um, I was majoring in neuroscience with a, focus, with a minor in economics because I wanted to help. I felt that biotech was going to be one way to help uh, people actually be uplifted out of poverty because it would better access to better medicine. And so uh, my lab partner had invented a drug, um, a small molecule drug that could cure both West Nile and dengue fever. And so that's what I went to grad school with in Cambridge was to help figure out how to commercialize that in the developing world. Um, and so I was really excited about delivering that type of therapy to, to help uplift people outside all over the country, all over the globe. What I found, though, was that going to school in Cambridge was that and you probably have some sense of this as well. I don't know if you guys do biotech investments, but um, at Gradient, but like we we don't typically we don't typically, but I've done a few myself. But it's it's a I mean it's tough to diligence and it's a different world. But yes, yeah. And basically, this was like I mean close to a decade ago. But I basically found that like it's going to take a billion dollars in ten years to um, actually deliver even that therapy we were trying to commercialize. Um, due to a variety of reasons. And so I didn't have as much patience for that. So I was like, I need to change the whole system. Um, the system is what's wrong. So I kind of blended back into policy there. And so I wrote my thesis on health reform because that's when Obamacare is passing and the effects it would have on um, the, the healthcare industry. And that's what then took me into the administration. And so that was my first exposure back into direct politics was trying to solve health reform and healthcare and, and getting therapies out. It was like, Oh, the policy is going to be where to make the impact and that took me into the administration. Uh, they didn't place me in HHS, they placed me in small business policy, but that gave me my first taste of politics. Um, and that was the transition there. Uh, I spent about a year there um, working. It was a great time working small business policy and 4G infrastructure and really showed the power of what national policy can do to uplift. I mean, 50% of small of, of people employed in the U S are employed by small businesses. So again, like it was clearly a, a very strong component and I saw the visible impact to help us get out of the financial, the first financial crisis of, of, of this last decade uh, or the century. And so that was really, really exciting to see um, the impact policy could have. When I came back though, uh, to the Bay area, uh, I think this was in the heyday of, of tech um, kind of being the next thing. And I really thought, 
that, okay, I've, I've done the private sector, I've done nonprofit, I've done the public sector, I've done nonprofits. Um, I now want to get my feet wet in technology in the private sector. And so I focused a lot on data and analytics and saw that as the next way to bridge the digital divide. So I started a company called Queerbrain that was looking to democratize access to um, kind of tools that Amazon and Facebook have and giving it for free to thousands of other small, medium-sized businesses. And so, again, it was still from like a social entrepreneurial lens of like, how do you democratize access to the tools that are necessary to enable everyone to move up into the middle class um, and seeing technology as potentially a lever to do that. And that's what took me back into technology here and focus on that for the last four or five years. And it looks like you went through YC, Y Combinator, mm-hmm. for those who don't know the acronym, in 2018. What was that like? And did you did you meet a lot of other immigrants during in that program that were looking to start companies? Did you feel like there was a uh, more immigrant immigrants and more first generation individuals in, in YC than other parts of your career, or um, or not? Yeah, I'd say looking back, um, I mean. Stanford was very diverse um, uh, in terms of because of their financial aid policies. So um, like I see my roommates, it was like my freshman year was my, my college roommate was from Wichita. Um, second year, my and third year, my college roommate was um, was Latin and he his, his mom was um, uh, was a maid. So and his parents were refugees from Guatemala. Uh, or sorry, El Salvador, and so and all different types of folks I would have never been exposed to in Palo Alto, uh, which was very, uh, very homogenous. Um, so I'd say Palo Alto was homogenous. Um, Stanford was pretty diverse. DC was also relatively homogenous um, at the time, and uh, yeah, I'd say white. And then yeah, my the first companies I worked with were also predominantly white. So yeah, YC was like my first exposure to tech where I saw more immigrant founders, and I think that was the year that they were starting to more branch out into Latin countries and also Indian countries. Um, right. And so, um, and now obviously once they've gone remote, it's been like massive amounts of diversity internationally. Um, of course. And so I think that was definitely uh, an exposure we got to. And it was, it was, it was informative. I think one of the things we observed from that is having these founders from other countries is you understood different business models and other, and other, um, other needs of different countries or even pricing economics. Um, it was definitely a fascinating experience. And uh, I would, I would definitely do YC again. It's funny now being running a political campaign to me, it actually feels a lot like demo day. Um, uh, in YC, you have <laughs> three months, you have this hard deadline where you're about to like launch something. And then uh, every week you're trying to like optimize for this goal. So constrained timeline, constrained resources, um, pack team. Uh, it's the same thing with a political campaign. Like with our election, it's a special election, so it's just a month, couple months ahead. You have this hard target deadline, um, and a lot of these components are. Uh, I find a lot of analogies in this context. So, very cool. And so, you you decided to sell the company to Amplitude. Congratulations on that, by the way. Amplitude just went public, and it's done very well since it went public. Um, and you're at Amplitude running product. What inspires you to decide, hey, I want to leave tech again and or I want to leave tech temporarily maybe and run first state assembly, which is what you're doing now? Yeah, so I think a lot of it had to do with 
I think the pandemic was a wake up call for a lot of us. And so the, the, the fascinating timing of our acquisition was that the day that our deal closed was the day shelter in place took effect. Um, and obviously the deal was in place for a little bit months before that, but hmm. uh, it, radically good timing. Um, but I never set foot in our Amplitude's office because we'd been in a pandemic the whole time. And I think having going through an acquisition and then having everything around you in San Francisco just get worse um, was a very weird experience to go through over the last year and very disconcerting. Um, you have, uh, there was so like, 300 anti-Asian hate crimes over the last year. Um, number of small businesses that were closing around me. I live in Soma or South of market here in San Francisco had the highest rate of business closures, the highest rate of opioid deaths, more opioid deaths than, than, than COVID deaths in our district. Um, a drastic increase in, in the number of people who were not able to get shelter and, and were, became unhoused. Um, like everything that, that I loved about our district had just gotten worse. And so it was very disconcerting to see that and not try to make an impact on it. And so even while I was still employed at Amplitude, I started to get involved with local democratic clubs. I started to get involved with local nonprofits to try to help small businesses. And the more I kept doing it from a philanthropic lens, I just realized back to my earlier lessons that I got when I went into the Obama administration originally, which was that technology and, and, and nonprofits and philanthropy have a role, but uh, the real systemic um, change was really going to happen from, from policy. Policy was the last remaining lever that we really weren't making progress on and oftentimes was holding back uh, the progress that we needed to actually make a change. And an example of that was I was trying to help small business restaurants. And one thing I noticed was that um, uh, there was two primary issues that every restaurant we talked to mentioned to me. One of them was that uh, their workers were leaving. The second was commercial rent debt. Neither of those issues were necessarily new issues, but the pandemic had been a powder keg on those, those parts. So workers leaving um, is because there wasn't affordable housing and because the public transit system sucked. Um, they weren't able to actually commute to work. Uh, and as a result, the workers were leaving. And so, and, and specifically, um, so a large percentage of restaurant workers in San Francisco are undocumented, so they didn't qualify for PPP loans. So they had no way of getting support. Um, oh, wow. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. And so 35, 30, what we found is 30 to 35% of restaurants employ um, undocumented workers. So they didn't have PPP, they couldn't qualify for PPP loans. So that's actually where we focused our, our giving was on, uh, was effectively like a guaranteed income scheme for, for undocumented workers so they could afford to live in the Bay Area. Uh, but the second issue was commercial rent debt. Um, it's the one fixed cost that small businesses had that they couldn't get out of during the pandemic. They couldn't get out of their lease. So they keep racking up uh, lease, uh, lease payments, but they can't, re- just, they can't reduce their hours. It doesn't affect that payment. It's a fixed cost. So there was no way philanthropy could actually cover the cost of every small business's rent in the city. It took like millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, but one lever that was possible was like a, uh, a tax credit, like a one-to-one, if a land, one-to-one tax credit to landlords, 
um, if they gave rent abatement to their commercial tenants to, in a small business. And so that was a policy lever that was possible. And so that showed me that like hmm. there's these small changes we can do that that have a exactly. big impact. So that's why I decided to shift back into policies because the issues I cared about, um, like inequality, were really being held back by bad policy. Um, and I think the overarching thing was we also had the orange skies last year. It was like a wake up call that um, I think there's enough people. Enough, thankfully, there's a lot of good people in nonprofits, a lot of good people working on good technology in the climate sector. Um, I just didn't think there was enough people working in policy uh, to help those other two sectors advance in the time that was necessary uh, that we have left. Yeah, got it. Gotcha. I mean, w- one thing that I think would be particularly interesting for people to to hear is you seem to not be phased by the same frustration that a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have with the government, right? That I've heard a number of stories where a Silicon Valley entrepreneur goes into government, gets very frustrated, comes back to entrepreneurship or even other industries, not just government. I guess what we, what I think would be great for the listeners to hear is why are you so optimistic that you can have an impact? You know, it's like, how do, are we, how do, uh, how do we get comfort that you're not going to get just as frustrated or are there things that you're doing that are different than other candidates have in the past? I mean, likely you're smarter than everyone else that's tried, but I'm just curious how we abate that frustration. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I have a couple thoughts on this. Generally, whenever I've done anything or starting something new, uh, I don't look at the odds. Uh, if any startup founder looked at the odds of success from a rational calculation, they would never start. Um, uh, and I, I, you know this as well. So it's like, uh, I never look at the odds of success. I create, uh, I feel that what's unique about Silicon Valley is you create the odds that you want. Um, and you do it one step at a time. Uh, one great advice I always got was like, you can't, if you're, if you're playing football, when you're, when you're in, in the middle of the game, you don't focus on the Super Bowl. You focus on getting the first down. Um, and then you focus on getting the touchdown and then you focus right. on the game. So it's like always focus on the step ahead. And that's one element of how you don't get frustrated is have incremental progress. So I think the larger thing for me and how I operate is like, I don't, Another way to look at it is I, I love the movie Interstellar. Um, uh, have you seen yeah, the movie? of course. It's one of my favorites. And so one of my favorite scenes is the docking scene where Cooper has to dock his ship that's like onto the other ship that's exploding. And the, the robot TARS says, uh, Cooper, this is impossible. Like, um, And then Cooper. And he says, no, it's necessary. Exactly. <laughs> My favorite scene. Um, and I operate in the same way. If something's necessary, you just have to do it. And that's what I feel about policy right now is that we have a ticking time bomb with climate. Um, uh, science doesn't care what the odds are. Um, like we have to make sure that this works uh, because it's the only planet we have and it's the last decade we have to fix it. Um, the second of why I'm optimistic is that I think there's been increasingly more examples of outsiders and people coming in who have made change from a, and shifted the overton windows. Like um, AOC came in and uh, obviously she's still an anomaly, but like proves that it's possible. And so her campaign manager that helped her win um, is an official advisor in our campaign as well. Um, I look at um, senators in California, like Scott Weiner who over time, but like single-handedly, I give him credit for pushing the Overton window on housing. 
Um, and what I think is consistent about those two people is that they firmly believe in something and they work tirelessly to achieve it. They don't make their platform based on polling. They don't make their, uh, they do things that are uncomfortable or don't pull well, but because they so firmly believe it, they're optimizing for uh, accomplishing a mission. And I think that's another thing you can draw an analogy to startups is the startups that are mission oriented, that are actually trying to achieve something that will push themselves to the troughs to make it a reality. Um, and I, I feel I'm the same way. To me, it's really about inequality and climate. And if you look at my platform on my, my website, it won't necessarily make sense in terms of consistency to most people because it's based on research and pol- and like methodology of, of work that we've done, not based on like what's most popular to different sides of a political persuasion or political alliances. So as a mix of things from different political alliances in San Francisco, because we just did what we thought was the best based on the research. And so that's why I'm optimistic is people have shown it's possible to come in from the outside. People have shown it's possible to move the Overton window on, on issues like housing. And I think we can now do that for climate and it's simply necessary. And that's why I'm optimistic that we can make a difference and, and, and we will. I mean, I, I commend your patience. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, <laughs> we're the same age and I, I definitely can't say that I'm as patient. So I, I, uh, I really, I hope that you can make a difference. And that's one of the reasons why I've, why we're supporting you um also would be great to know a little bit about the story of the restaurant shalimar i mean i I love that restaurant i know we talked about it last time we got together it is a san francisco staple maybe about uh going there with your parents and and what that was like and how that has evolved into being one of the reasons why you're running yeah i think it's a good story i think the so Shalimar is a restaurant that's in the Tenderloin. It's on Jones Street. Um, it's the first Pakistani restaurant in the Bay Area. And it's a fascinating story because it started by just a couple of cab drivers who wanted to just eat for themselves. And so they would just get together and pull their resources and make food for themselves. Over time, people like my parents started eating there. And they're like, oh, we'll turn this into a restaurant. And so for my parents, uh, who immigrated here 30 years ago from Pakistan to the Bay Area, what San Francisco represented to my family was this restaurant. It's why we came almost every other weekend to, to San Francisco was literally just to eat there. And so I think to them, it represented a taste of home and a refuge for some facets of what they left behind. Um, And uh, to the rest of us, it was just really good food. Um, If you haven't been there, you should. It's delicious. Oh my God. I I would prices. I would plug Shalimar for on this show for sure. For sure. I mean, and it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. The, and I, I kind of say it's like the Costco of box line pizza. The prices have not changed in like 30 years. Um, and it's still just as good. Um, so, and I think that's, that's kind of like a large facet of why, um, and, and tying into like why I'm running, like if you go to the tenderloin, like, this restaurant and what the Tenderloin represented 30 years ago was that San Francisco was a beacon of hope for immigrants. It was a beacon of hope for migrants, people fleeing conflict, and to also feel a taste of their old, old home. San Francisco, 60%, 60% of San Francisco is either like first, second, or third generation immigrants. Uh, uh, Wow. I didn't know that. That's that. It's like, I mean, just it's 33, 35% Asian American and about 25, 30% Latin. And so, 
or Latin Americans. So it's like just from that population alone, it's like over 60% um, is, is the, the child or, or, or grandchild of immigrants. And so in that context, the tenderloin is often where a lot of these, a lot of us lived. I just live a couple blocks from there as well still. And it's a vestige now of what it once was. Um, it's the opiate epidemic is predominantly concentrated there. Um, so many unhoused uh, are concentrated there. The inequality is very visible um, from skyscrapers to tents. Um, Anti-Asian violence um, is largely centered around in this district as well. And so people just don't really feel safe going there anymore. Um, and that's sad because it affects business, it affects quality of life. And uh, that's another reason why I decided to run was that this is the district that was what represented home to my parents and want to ensure that it remains so uh, for other immigrants and migrants coming to the city. Fantastic. Well said. Well, look, I, I think this has been a great show to hear a little bit about you and your campaign. Uh, maybe touch a little bit on, on the things or, or your campaign platform uh, that you're that you're focused on. At least it, it definitely speaks to me. I think that San Francisco is going through a crisis. We have a DA who doesn't really know what he's doing and wants to decriminalize pretty much everything. We have uh, crime. We have major problems in the state. We have um, really a tax policy that's forcing everyone to leave. Why should we stay? And what do you think the things are that you would do to make this state sort of return to its place as the best state in the country, at least for me, and then given I grew up here? Yeah. Yeah. So I think our campaign is really about this theme of what is it, what is it, what is required to ensure the upward mobility of the middle class? What is required to ensure San Francisco remains the beacon of hope for immigrants, migrants like our parents? Um, And so if you distill down what are the four requirements, in my opinion, to achieve the middle class, it's affordable housing, it's good public schools, it's good public transit, and it's a sense of public safety. And on those veins, one of the reasons I decided to run for state assembly is I feel the state has a large impact on a lot of those components. Public safety is a little bit more in the control of the city rather than the state, but there's some things we can do there as well. So from a housing perspective, we just need to make sure that we we build more. Um, policy is the predominant blocker to, in terms of zoning and and outdated regulations that prohibit the ability for us to continue to build. Um, that's what's not making it possible to build in the long term. And then in the short term, we need to really tackle uh, Things like um, uh, just not enough transitional shelter. Uh, even if you were able to share for the unhoused, one of the major issues is accessibility. They don't even know where to go if you if you went to them. But there's just strictly not enough beds um, for for the unhoused to sleep in. And there's about the numbers vary, but like um, ten, fifteen thousand people. But I think one of the issues that is problematic in our policy is we really don't focus on, we focus a lot of our policies on the people who are more visibly chronic homelessness. We forget that 30% of, of homeless and unhoused are children. Um, a significant percentage of them are just living in cars or crashing on, on sofas. Um, a lot of our policies really need to focus on a lot of these people who we are not seeing 
because those are the people in the lower middle class, lower class, middle class that really we need to be spending more time on because um, uh, they're actually, we can actually help them at an easier capacity. Um, for public schools, we need to make sure that we raise the bar and don't lower the bar. In San Francisco, a lot of people don't know this, but we have cut out eighth grade algebra. Algebra is not taught anymore in public schools and middle school. Um, we had a whole weird school renaming issue last year and schools rename, remain closed and focused instead of on how to open them, we focus on how to rename them. And there's a huge kind of fallacy of performative politics happening here in San Francisco and people not focusing on outcomes. So we need to really raise the bar on, on, on public education uh, to remain competitive internationally. But it was often math and science was the ticket for many immigrants to move up. And I know when we worked in President Obama's administration, we were trying to accelerate STEM education. Now we seem to be going backwards. And so those kind of components, and then obviously public safety, there's been 300 hate crimes last year and this year alone, um, and we haven't really charged any of them. From the state's perspective, like the DA is obviously not in the control of the state, but there's things we can do in the state from creating an anti-Asian hate crime fund to creating a hate crime hotline um, to uh, more pressure on, on disposition rates. And so there's things we can do in the state. Uh, and so there's a lot of things we want to focus on is to really distill down what are the components of the middle class, what are single point changes we can make to have outsized impact on those th different facets or changes in the details. Makes sense. Makes total sense. And, and uh, your, your distillation is, is frankly really gives me hope that there are small changes that can impact all of our lives. So, um, for everyone, please uh, go check out Bilal's website, BilalForAssembly.com. I'm very, very hopeful that we can see some change in the state because it's becoming more and more unlivable by the day. But in any case, thank you so much, Bilal, for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. Uh, anything else you want to leave uh, our listeners with? Uh, what, what advice would you have for an immigrant that's coming to San Francisco or an immigrant that's looking to build their dreams or a tech founder that wants to get into policy, any advice you can provide considering you, you're a pro now? Yeah, um, uh, I'd say like, uh, like I've been involved more in national policy before and my, um, but like it's, and I'm getting involved in local politics. It's, it's more accessible than people think. Um, general tips are get involved in your neighborhood association, get involved in your local democratic clubs. There's only 500 people involved in all the local democratic clubs in San Francisco in a city of like 800,000 people. Um, and so it's very possible for you to have influence and impact in the system, get involved with the associations. Even if you're an immigrant and not a registered voter or, or you, you can't vote, um, San Francisco has done some great laws that have made it possible for you to run for kind of local positions. Um, you can actually vote uh, for a school board. Um, uh, which is often a stepping stone to higher office for better or for worse here in San Francisco. You don't have to be a citizen, I believe, to vote for school board. So I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. So there's certain positions that you can actually vote on. And so um, you can't vote on other things, but uh, so some of those capacities you can. So there's a lot of different ways to get involved, but uh, highly recommend getting involved with local democratic clubs, your neighborhood association, because everything, even national policies are affected by, by local uh, so that's how I would recommend getting involved um, and, and, and starting the journey. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Bilal, and we'll be rooting for you. 
Um, thank you. So, thank you. Yeah, let's, uh, let's definitely get together soon. And I appreciate that you did this. Thank you.